0: Well, hey, Chris. Lawyer. What? Sorry. Lawyer. Are you asking for a lawyer? Lawyer. Are you calling me a lawyer? Lawyer. I don't know what this is, but I'm just going to start the show. Lawyer. Oh boy.
1: Hey, John. Hey, Chris. Uh, It's uh, we're we're starting up on uh, episode five of Soul Searching here, and. I guess we'll be recapping episode six of Better Call Saul. Uh, Hold on a second, Chris. It doesn't add up, counselor. I know. It's a mess. But don't worry, because we're going to do a bonus episode coming up, and uh, that's going to get our numbers in sync, and then we'll be, uh, you know, the same number of Saul searching will be the same episode number of uh, Better Call Saul, and uh, people, when they see that on the podcast listings... They'll be so impressed. They'll be like, this is awesome. But, uh, okay, so episode six was called uh, 5.0, and it starts with a flashback of uh, Mike when he first arrived in Albuquerque by train, and uh, I just found that lovely and elegant. Uh, I don't know why. I guess, you know, to start getting into another character's background the same uh, as we have Jimmy's, uh, just giving you flashbacks. I don't know why it's always so... Uh, delicious to me when you first you get to know a character and you think you know them and like them and then you go back and get some deeper insight about their
0: background or how they got here or whatever there's something about just filling in the blanks of what we already know that doesn't satisfy but obviously we can see now this show has much more on its mind than just filling in, in the blanks from from jimmy's past but as far as them jumping to mike the way you described I did think that sequence was really elegant, and I do think they've created kind of a shorthand for this world where when we we see that we're focusing on Mike, we start to take we start to take in all the visual cues. We see, you know, like that opening scene um, with the train where we're kind of seeing the point of view of the train and then it pulls into the station and then we can see that we're in Albuquerque and we can see Mike step out. And we've always known Mike in Albuquerque. So yeah, it's a significant moment. It feels like, oh wow, this is when Mike came to Albuquerque. And we start placing it in our mind. Well, it has to be before the events of the beginning of the Jimmy timeline <laughs> or the 2002 Jimmy timeline in Better Call Saul. You know, it has to be in that space before that because it's the first episode of this show Mike was already working in the parking lot so you immediately you start trying to put together like where is this what's going on and you realize how little you know about Mike right uh Mike goes into the train station women's room uh to buy a
1: uh, feminine hygiene product because hidden under his shirt is a bullet wound uh and he's using this for a, a a new bandage uh that's how tough he is you know he just goes around like that uh it's like and I'm, for some reason I'm really full of uh, comic strip comparisons today, but it reminds me of when Popeye uh, got shot in the uh, early days of Dumble Theater. He got shot like twenty times, and he just kind of says, "You
0: know, bullets don't bother me," you know, because <laughs> he's just that tough. He goes back there, and he just he he says, "Janitor, anybody here?" in that in that way that and you're watching it, going, "Wait, why is he going into the women's room?" You know what I mean? Like that's that's so much the way that this show unfolds. And the way Breaking Bad unfolded is that you would be watching it kind of going, well, not much is happening in this scene, but you still don't know for sure why he's doing that. And then you see him buy something and you're still not sure what he's doing until you see him doing it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it 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 keeps you guessing about what the next beat is going to be, even when, if you were to step back from that scene, not much happened. All he did was go in and, and stick a uh, sanitary napkin on his on his <laughs> bullet wound. I would like to add, since we were talking about how that scene Was shot, that opening scene, how elegantly put together it was. This episode was directed by Adam Bernstein, who directed the first couple of regular episodes of Breaking Bad after the pilot. So he was a crucial director in kind of setting up the visual style. Or developing the visual style of this extremely visual show so seeing him come back for an episode I remember telling you before we watched this one it was sort of an indication that it was gonna be a significant episode to me that Adam uh, Bernstein was coming back to do it right and um, you know I've admired him for years before he worked on Breaking Bad he's done all kinds of stuff I think he directed the it's Pat movie but I knew him as a video (laughs) director back in the day and he directed videos for uh, they might be Giants primarily but also ween the B-52s a ton of really fun you interesting videos that if you looked at them now, you would remember them as kind of being just visually uh, uh, vivacious. And I think that he brought that vividness to uh, Breaking Bad. Not to say that they weren't going to do that without him, but I think of Adam Bernstein as kind of one of the pillars of the visual style. That makes me want to
1: finally get around to seeing the It's Pat movie. (laughs) Uh, It's probably a lot better than I expected. I shouldn't have skipped it.
0: You know how with a lot of those weird uh, comedies like that, if they make you laugh five times when you catch them on cable or Netflix or something, they feel like they earned their keep somehow. Yeah. I don't know if it's Pat is anybody's favorite movie, but um, but I'm sure I'm sure there's a few yucks in there. Yeah, you have to let me know.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um. So then we're at Stacy's house, and uh, Mike is playing with Kaylee, and uh, it's clear now that she's his daughter-in-law, and his son Maddie is dead, uh, and he wants to. Uh, take care of Kaylee, his granddaughter, and uh, actually, it's not that clear, uh, you know, that that uh, Stacy is his daughter-in-law, but but it is. I mean, we, you know, we've 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 got enough stuff to gather it, but I think that on a on a well-written show like this, there's always going to be a little confusion. That, you know, there's going to be spouses turning to each other and saying, "Wait, is that his his daughter or his daughter-in-law? What's going on?" Because. It's a symptom of good writing. They're they're never gonna have a line in there like You're my father in law, you know? Or uh you know as your father-in-law, I'm here to take care of my granddaughter, you know. uh, Right. Or, we've
0: been friends for 30 years. Right.
1: They're just going to avoid lines like that so that it won't sound hinky.
0: I'm sure Better Call Saul has viewers who didn't watch Breaking Bad. But, like, this episode in particular is one that's extremely powerful if you watch Breaking Bad. I don't know how, I mean, it's as well acted as it was, and as well written and as well directed, I don't know that this episode would be as powerful to someone that didn't have the background of watching Breaking Bad. So what I'm talking about is just the picture of Mike that we formed. We kind of know who Kaylee is we kind of saw him drive up to a woman last week we were already supposing that woman was associated with Kaylee you know what I mean it just seemed right yeah and then uh from uh from there he takes a cab uh Oh, wait, before we leave that scene, I have a thought here. Kaylee, we, we expressed before, maybe Kaylee wouldn't be born yet. Right. This would be six years before the events of Breaking Bad. Right. But we see Kaylee in this episode, and she doesn't, I mean, in my opinion, <laughs> she didn't look much younger than the Kaylee that we saw on Breaking Bad.
1: Yeah, like, what is she, five? So, and five, six years earlier, she's also five? Or is she meant to, maybe she's, you say it's six years apart, and we know that. Is that right?
0: Yes. She. I mean, I just, just having a seven-year-old in my house, he's already becoming like a beanpole at seven. I don't think the Kaylee that we saw in Breaking Bad looked much bigger than seven or eight. Right. So it really doesn't make sense that she would be basically a... I mean, she seemed to be at least four or five in this episode. Maybe I'm wrong. I, it was just a rare example of something that felt kind of ill-considered, that if she had just been holding a baby in one of the scenes, mm-hmm. it would have made perfect sense, and the math would have been great. But this, right. to me, was sort of... sort. It kind of bumped me a little bit, like the bad wigs did, as far as, like... Okay, you have to just kind of get over that because it really doesn't work out that Kaylee would be that old. I mean, unless they found a three-year-old who really did look like a five-year-old, but I don't know why they would do that. You know? Yeah.
1: If not that, then then yeah, we could say uh, she was a very large and mature-looking uh, four-year-old, and then uh, six years later at ten, she had uh, really not grown much, and, and uh, she's she's, a, she's, she's, a, she's got she, a heavy smoking habit. And she's, she's stunted her growth. Started smoking a lot, stunted her growth, and she, uh, is a a very small 10-year-old. Then Mike takes a cab, and he susses out that this is the, uh, kind of a cab driver who might know where to find the kind of a doctor who works off the books, shall we say. And, uh, so next thing you know, we're at the veterinarian's office, uh, where Mike is getting his bullet hole sewn up by the vet, and, uh that actor reminded me so much of, uh, of Paul Giamatti, I thought uh, my gosh, that's gotta be Paul Giamatti's brother or something uh, but no, I, I looked him up he's a comic named Joe DeRosa and uh, uh, seems like a nice guy, but uh, uh, apparently everyone else <laughs> agrees uh, that he has a lot of uh, Paul Giamatti going on, I don't know if they grew up on the same block or uh, or what, but they, they talk a lot alike
0: and uh, I don't know, he kind of has the same cheeks or something <laughs> People that grow up on the same block don't, don't always tend to look alike. I don't know if you noticed that.
1: <laughs> well, I was attributing the talking alike to that. You know, it's like they, it's okay. like, it's like they have a, a subtle <laughs> accent. Like, you don't think about Paul Giamatti's accent. But when you hear someone else who has the same accent, you realize both these guys have the same accent. Maybe they grew up on the same block. I don't
0: know. Well, no, I see what you're saying. I, I thought um, Judah Friedlander. Uh, and I was like, I'm now saying this guy is like if you took, it's an if they made it of Judah Friedlander and Paul Giamatti.
1: Well, I feel bad now that we're not letting Joe Rosa be his own man. Which
0: is- no, but Joe Rosa, I recognized him as, a, I mean, Joe Rosa, if you're listening, I recognized you and I thought you were great. And I loved that in this world, again, in, in Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould's Albuquerque, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> I That's- love that even a vet- even a veterinarian is like, he knows a guy who knows a guy. Yeah,
1: right. Maybe for our shorthand, if you're tired of saying, um, in the world created by Vince Gilligan and uh, Peter Gould, uh, the Albuquerque of Breaking Bad and
0: Better Call Saul, instead of that, we could just call it Albuquerque. Okay. With the understanding that if anyone's listening that lives in Albuquerque, we're not making any broad statements about the actual city of Albuquerque or, or, Albu- Al- or Albuquerque's. Right,
1: this particular fictional Albuquerque.
0: So now, now we're
1: back in the present day, and uh, the Philly cops are uh, trying to question Mike, uh, and he won't say anything but the word lawyer over and over, uh, and finally he slaps
0: down Jimmy's card on the table. A badass moment, I thought. Yeah. It was great to see how Jimmy was going to get roped into the Mike storyline that we were seeing. It made perfect sense, you know. Right. What I love about that was when we find out why Mike really called Jimmy. Like, if Mike really thought he needed legal help, he might not have called Jimmy. Which becomes clear immediately because
1: he, if Jimmy comes to meet with Mike. Mike has this crazy plan for Jimmy to uh, spill coffee on the detective uh, so that Mike can pickpocket his notebook and find out, uh, you know, what they know about the case, I guess. And uh, But Jimmy says, no, he's going to do everything above board. Uh and then in the interview, uh, uh, we get some exposition. We learn about Mike's son, Maddie, who was uh, killed as a rookie, and how uh, his partner and, and the sergeant were killed a couple months later, and that Mike uh, left town the next day after they were killed. Uh, uh, but Mike doesn't really give them anything uh, new to go on much. And, uh, but then when they're all walking out, uh, Jimmy uh, executes the coffee spilling plan. And it works, and, and Mike gets the notebook.
0: One thing that was great about that was when the cops uh, uh, are out in the hall and they greet Jimmy, he's got his great entrance where he says, Airman Trout, who's got him and where? He just seems, I mean, again, it's like we're watching a badass lawyer show at that point. Yeah. We're watching a, a show about the cool lawyer. Right. He's still in the suit, which I loved. And I didn't notice last time when he was visiting the old people whether this was the case or not, but I noticed it for sure this time is that he's got the swoop in his hair. I didn't notice last time that he has the Andy Griffith swoop. Oh, Uh, combed into his bangs. It's not Jimmy's usual kind of like, you know, stringy bangs kind of pushed down or pushed to the side. It's like swooped right (laughs) it's it's a shape it's not quite Ronald Reagan but it's it's a shape of bangs you know Um, which is great and then I love that the 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 cop from Philly sees him and says um, you look like Matlock (laughs) which is such a funny (laughs) thing to point out and then he says no I look like a young Paul Newman dressed as Matlock (laughs) right I mean this is like such a concentrated dose of Jimmy he's only in a couple scenes in this episode which is a cool experiment but he comes in and he is this great he it, it was like a fun it reminded me of on Breaking Bad when you would get to a Saul scene and you would enjoy Enjoy the, the five or ten minutes you would get with Saul right you know and then you would know that he's not gonna be of course he's not gonna be part of Mike's personal life that he's dealing with later in the episode right but in this moment you see how the two characters kind of interface but when he's doing that thing where he's just promising I'm gonna do this on the level so this little Juan Valdez bump and dump it's not gonna happen <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's decided to play along with Mike a little right. bit in this scene um, for whatever but reason, the, we don't really get why he. But when he goes to mind, do, it, well, then. that's what I was going to ask you. Do, if you don't know why, I have a thought that he seemed to kind of turn when he found out about Mike's tragedy. When he heard about Mike's yeah. son dying, yeah. he seemed to kind of turn because he said, "Like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that," and you see him kind of regarding Mike a little differently. Yeah, and he maybe to that's to start it. thinking like he said, "I need to help this man." I know Jimmy's. We you got Jimmy's got that heart,
1: you know. So that night, um, Mike's reading the cop's notebook and. Uh, Seems to include dates and times about, uh, uh, you know, when Stacy moved out of town and when Mike moved out of town and uh, this kind of thing. Uh, and then he goes to talk to Stacy. And uh, they have a heated conversation because it turns out that she called the cops. Uh, she had found uh, like 6000 bucks that uh, Maddie had hidden away, so uh, she thinks he must have been a dirty cop. Uh, uh, so she called the cops to try to help in some way, uh, you know, figure out who killed him.
0: And Mike's very defensive. He's like, Maddie wasn't dirty. I I thought it was really interesting in that scene. Again, I don't want to get too far ahead of us, but let's let's make note of what we know now about, you know, when we get to the end of the episode, you have this new bit of information about what happened with Maddie. But in this scene, we find out that the money that Maddie took was was a paltry five or six K. When you think about the kind of money that, like, Walter White made, or you think about the money that the Kettlemans are making off with, and you think about the fact that Maddie Ehrman Trout had five or six K. Yeah. That really hit me like a ton of bricks when I watched it the second time and she quoted that amount. Because to her, uh, you know, a a cop's widow with a kid, that was an unexpectedly large amount of money to find laying around. Right. To me, it just underscored the tragedy that much more that it was over such a small amount of money. Yeah. And it was the first time he took it. The transition from him leaving stacy's house to him being in philly was a cool shot where he's walking across the street and the camera kind of moves past him and he's still walking but now he's in philly did you notice that like it was a it was just like in the a veterinarian's office earlier the camera moves past the veterinarian and then past another person in the short, in the foreground it's as though the veterinarian was in the interrogation room with the cops and, right uh, i mike. remember that
1: transition like, but i didn't remember this second one you're talking
0: about i think this scene is, we start to see the development of that idea that's been hinted at a couple times in the episode already of mike having had a drinking problem or hitting rock bottom or yeah. or whatever everybody seems to know that about him and in this scene we're seeing I feel like we are we go oh we we are seeing Mike at that point. Mike seems like he's at rock bottom at this moment. Right. But he also seems like maybe there's a there's a plan. And I I wanted to ask you like do you, how much of a plan do you think it was? Do you think he really hit rock bottom and then had a plan or do you think part of his plan involved hitting rock bottom? Uh no, I think he really did hit rock bottom and then he formed a plan
1: wherein I have to stay sober this night and uh and appear to be drunk off my ass. Uh, that's just my theory after they picked him up and he's in the back of the car and they've taken the gun off him he's acting so drunk that you almost want to believe well he really is drunk here and uh they're gonna try to take him out and shoot him i guess but um but you know that he has tampered with their car beforehand so you know he's got some plan in mind and then they get him out and, and uh they're discussing shooting him, and of course he comes out and has pulled a gun out of the back seat where he hidden has hidden it earlier, and his is loaded and theirs is not, and uh, and he seems stone cold sober at that point. So yeah, you know he's you know he for sure he's he's planned what they were going to do and what he was going to do, and also it seems to me like he. Uh, you know, he waits for them to make the wrong moves. He's not just going to uh, execute them now. He waits for the guy to try to shoot him and then he shoots him. And then he waits for the other guy to try to shoot him and then he shoots him. You know, he's, he's, he's being the good guy in the Western who who only shoots after being drawn on. Uh, although, of course, then the sergeant ha- survives and tries to crawl away and he does have to execute him, you know.
0: Um, I thought that was brilliant too. Um, yeah, the... the, the um. He's, yeah, when he's in the back seat and he's kind of babbling, and then he says, it was you, I know it was you, and I'm going to prove it. You know, and, and you see that the two cops were probably, I don't know, I bought it as them, they were maybe going to kill Mike anyway. And then when he said that they kind of looked at each other like yeah we got to do this. It started at the bar when he said I know it was you, which yeah. is I don't we didn't talk about it, but that's your that's one of your anyway pop culture references is uh, that's a famous line from Godfather when Michael says to Fredo, I know it was you Fredo and he and he hugs his face close to his, you know, and he ah. looks at him and shortly shortly after that Fredo's dead. Um so I felt like the writers of this show are too aware of their movie classics, not to know that I know it was you as you hug someone's head into you know close to yeah, you right. is is a reference, whether as Mike was making a pop culture reference or not. Um, but um, yeah, and the other thing he said that kind of plays into what you said, you know. Um, and I, I thought it was great. Like they they are making the plan. He hears them make the plan. They're gonna they're gonna make it look like he he was gonna kill himself, and they tried to stop him, and then he shot himself or something. And and then he says, "Smart. It's what I would have done if I were you." Right. Which to me is an interesting line because again on the second time through it played as mike tacitly admitting that he's a corrupt cop
1: yeah yeah
0: and i'll be damned if i didn't worry about mike even though i knew he had to survive like i was still going what's going to happen here yeah i thought the the visual detail of him stepping on the guy's foot as he's trying to crawl away before he blows him away that was such a great detail but so cold yeah he's more of a more more of like an avenging angel and less of a of a hero right
1: and then he takes the bullet that that uh, that we see the the wound from at the opening of the show. And then mm-hmm. we're uh, uh, we're back in the present day at the end of the, of the episode. Uh, he's he's still with Stacy, and he tells her the whole story. He opens up now about him having been a dirty cop and that the whole force was dirty cops, and how he advised Maddie to accept dirty money uh, for his own safety, and he convinced him. Uh, but it sounds like. Maddie went to take the money, but he hesitated when he took it, so that the other cops got suspicious of him and thought oh, he's going to rat on us or whatever, and uh, and so they killed him.
0: Ah, oh, that was brutal. I mean, you just hate that for Mike. You know what I mean? Like now you think of his, his every every long look off into the distance that he gave on Breaking Bad, and you understand the pain behind it. You know? Yeah. You understand why he was that guy. Yeah, uh,
1: and it was it was a great performance there. He was totally distraught and upset, and and. Uh, and that monologue from him is probably the the most we've heard him talk yet, and he's
0: mm-hmm. tearful throughout and what does he say? something about it's like it's like killing Caesar, everyone's guilty, talking about the corruption on the force, right you know he was kind of giving his son. Good, experienced advice about how to get along in this world. Right. It just weighs on Mike, and that's what you know at the end of that. And I loved his line at the end of the episode. And were you surprised that it actually ended as early as it did? Because lately the episodes have been going like a couple minutes longer than your average hour-long show. Um, Uh. But this episode, at like 56 into the hour, instead of having like five minutes left, it ended so it actually surprised me when it went to black after his line, but that line he said, uh, "You know what she she asked him what happened to the guys that killed Maddie, and he says, "You know what happened. The question is, can you live with it and that's the end of the show, you know? yeah, so the question of what Stacy's going to do with this information that Mike just gave her right. could very much be alive and in play at the beginning of the next episode. I mean right, we, might, we, can, might d- we we can just think, well, she's probably okay to keep quiet
1: now, but we don't know her that well, and she might very well." Uh, not be okay to do that
0: right so that's still that's still a question that plot line's still alive which is interesting and it, it i liked it because i thought stacy was an actress who did a lot with those scenes i've recognized her from other things her name's carrie condon she was on rome um and she was a lot younger there she's you know grown a bit since then so she but i thought she inhabited that role there was something around her eyes that seemed like the kind of tired person who who has had to deal with this unexpected tragedy, but had to kind of move on. And like the state of their yard and things like that just kind of hinted at, at her being a little depressed or checked out of what's going on. So she feels like another addition to this, this world of characters. I hope, I hope we get to see a little bit more with her. But if we didn't, it would make sense why they would cast a good actress for this one episode because her scenes with Mike were really powerful. And let's face it, very dramatic. There was very little of the sort of fun <laughs> right, that we've come to expect. And I don't know, did, ha, what did you think in terms of that? Like the way the episode fit in with um, with the overall arc of, of what we've seen thus far with Better Call Saul?
1: Well, yeah, in the tone, you're right. Not having Jimmy in a, in a lot of scenes, it takes out uh, just the humorous energy that he brings to scenes and the jokes that he brings to the scenes. So it definitely makes for a more somber uh, episode, but uh, not so much that it... Bugsby in any way. It's 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 fun. Like I say, it's fun to watch Mike in, in just a different way.
0: It, I, but I don't think it was a complete narrative cul-de-sac because obviously the, there's still the present storyline of what's going to happen with the cops from Philly, what's going to happen to Mike, you know, because right. they clearly still suspect him just because right. he stole their notebook <laughs> isn't going to absolve him of anything, you know.
1: Right. So, I feel like we've covered the episode pretty well. We've, we've uh, talked about a lot and I'm almost uh, ready to call it a hot talk for the day I wanted to say I kind of thought of a uh, little uh, a label like the way we were referring to Jimmy as a, a silly maverick it uh, something made me think uh, I might call Mike a believable badass because <laughs> I feel like you know the movies and TV are full of people who can go in and shoot up everybody in the room and leave Uh, But Mike, you know, makes me think there could be people in the world who are like that. You know, I always think that's not real. Anybody who goes in and starts shooting people up gets shot up. But seeing Mike, he's just a a, a more realistic guy uh, because he's half old and frail and half strong and terse and badass. And so I just I just I can believe it.
0: Well, you know, he's a um, he's world weary. Yeah. He's he's hangdog. He's all those things, you know, but he's he's focused. And you've never really seen him outside of sit, seeing him with his granddaughter, his ageless immortal granddaughter from a place before time. Um or sitting him seeing their <laughs> seeing him sitting there in his home watching old movies. We really haven't seen like the fun side of Mike. We don't really see him as a guy who has a lot of joy in his life. So yeah, he's like you're right. He's like an old movie hero from the 40s or something with his hard-nosedness, but he's in the real world of today. And I do think there's something about him that feels, yeah, yeah, there's something kind of something believable and realistic. Yeah, he's not like a super agile, super fit, insanely uh, uh, like muscular guy. He's just, a, he's just a guy who knows lots of tricks. Yeah, he doesn't <laughs> accomplish
1: he's... these things with uh, John Woo backflips,
0: but just with uh, uh, experience. You know, Chris, it actually makes me think. I know we talked about opening the episode this week with a new pledge, the Pledge of Ermin Trout, and I'd sort of thought maybe not, but now that we're at the end and we've talked about Mike, I kind of think maybe, maybe it would be appropriate if we actually did, because these are important words that'll make you, just like the Pledge of Odenkirk allows us to tap into the spirit of Odenkirk and sets us up for the show. I think that maybe as we end this kind of somber take on uh, on on this Albuquerque that we've come to know and love, maybe we should speak the words of the the Pledge of Ermin Trout together.
1: Okay. Okay. Well, I've got it here. Uh, You sent it to me, and I'm looking at it. So, you ready? Yes. Okay.
0: I don't don't have have to to pledge pledge anything. Do Do what what you're you're going to do. do. That's That's really really all all there there is to it. it. Wow. Such power. Yeah. Yeah. Before we end this episode, I wanted to let you know we did not get any emails or Twitters this week. Um, I don't know what happened. Uh, Rumor has it, Chris, that our audience has gone out west on a search for redemption and perhaps peace. But if anyone does want to write into the show, they can reach us at SaulSearching at gmail.com, or they can find us on Twitter at Saul underscore Searching. I did pull something off the internet to sort of serve as the audience observation of the week. Not that this person is in our audience, but it's highly relevant, and it was the best statement I saw online uh, after this episode. It's uh, from Jonathan Banks' Facebook page. He posted this morning, just wrap up the Emmy now. (laughs) (laughs) confidence. Well, I like the confidence, but I also say I think we're in that age where we've seen it happen with, like, Quentin Tarantino taking a few actors that were kind of in the wasteland and bring them back, and we've seen that happen. And Jonathan Banks was a character actor on television for for decades, you know, um, before he got cast as Mike. So I think for him, getting to play an episode like this, getting to play a scene like that, is probably uh, something a lot of guys in their 60s don't get to do. You know, guys who played heavies on, like, network dramas and stuff for years. They don't typically get to come back and do this kind of thing. But we are in that age where if you get that right role, you can really work your way into the, into the collective consciousness. And I think that Jonathan Banks, I mean, I knew who he was before Breaking Bad. And when I saw him on Breaking Bad and recognized him, it was a huge like, oh, that guy, he's really good. But I, I mean, I, you know, I was blown away by that scene uh, with Stacey. I don't yeah, know yeah. if it's just as a dad, but just thinking about that the weight of responsibility of of what that character feels guilty for, it's so dark and and it was so brilliantly depicted that um yeah, I mean I, I to know that they supposedly have an even more heartbreaking episode coming in episode 9 of this season, I'm now beginning to go oh shit. Hmm. <laughs> What's going to happen yeah. and who's it going to happen to? 3 episodes away. I'll I'll steal myself. If, if if that counts as a spoiler, I apologize. No, it's good to be ready sometimes. Well, Chris, that was a hot talk. That was a hot talk.